You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is From Crete to Malta, Episode 5, with Walter Fite. In the last lecture that we did, we looked at the document from Conflict to Communion that was put out by the Joint Catholic-Lutheran Commission in order to study unity and particularly the common commemoration of the Reformation in 2017. And we went through a few of the key doctrines, salvation by grace, the role of the Eucharist, uh, the part that a priest plays, uh, and we looked at all of these issues and we saw that it seems as if the Lutherans had totally given up on Protestantism and had moved all the way back, even to the point of admitting that the host is the literal body and blood of Christ with elements of veneration built into there, which is incomprehensible that something of that nature should ever be possible on this planet. But we read in the great controversy that this indeed would take place, and now it has taken place. Now we're going to continue with this document, From Conflict to Communion. And the next points that we will be studying are issues of church and hierarchy and how it all fits together. And we'll see what they have to say about it. Service to the Church Universal, this is point 186 in their document. Lutherans and Catholics agree that the ministry serves the Church Universal. Lutherans presuppose that the congregation assembled for worship stands in an essential relation to the Universal Church. So in other words, what they have admitted is that they are not separate from the Universal Church. It's just another way of saying Catholic Church because Catholic means universal, so it's a rather clever way of putting it. So they are affiliated with this church, although when Luther broke and the Reformation started, when they broke with the church, they separated. So now they are returning back to the fold. And that this relation is intrinsic to the worshipping congregation. So unity is essential. And then the issue of pastoral government comes up. How does one see the structure of the church? And of course, the Roman Catholic Church says that the Bishop of Rome, by virtue of his office, is pastor of the whole church. Now Martin Luther, of course, called the Pope Antichrist and said that he cannot be over the church because Christ is over the church. And uh, if you go to the Reformation in England, when the English put a king as head of the church, the Scots rebelled and said, how can we now replace a pope with a king? We have no king other than Jesus Christ. Article 188, the Second Vatican Council reaffirmed its understanding that bishops have by divine institution taken the place of the apostles. That's quite an incredible statement. As pastors of the church in such wise, 
that whoever hears them hears Christ and whoever rejects them rejects Christ and him who sent Christ that's an incredible statement so if I don't listen to a bishop then I reject Christ but what if the bishop is totally apostate or worse ends up in the news for all kinds of clandestine activities splashed all over the world is that my example that I should follow isn't there a higher example than we can follow than earthly bishops if they would say something that is in harmony with the Word of God then fine if they say something that's out of harmony with the Word of God to the law and the testimony if they speak not according to this word they have no light in them so that's a fascinating statement so Rome hasn't moved its position one iota even though the Protestant world thinks that they have come closer to Protestantism, the closeness is only a move on the part of Protestantism. And then the fullness of the sacramental sign, 191, for Catholics, Lutheran ordinations lack a fullness of sacramental sign. You see, in Roman Catholic thinking, when a priest is ordained into the priesthood, he receives the power to become an altar Christos, another Christ. And he gets the power to transform the host into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now we saw in the document already that the Lutherans seem to have capitulated and claiming Luther's earlier convictions agreed that there was this element of the real presence which of course is a blasphemy because there was only one sacrifice that satisfied the redemptive needs in totality therefore it is also Catholic doctrine that in Lutheran churches the sacramental sign of ordination is not fully present because those who ordain do not act in communion with the Catholic Episcopal College. Okay, so you're not, you're not fully incorporated yet, so you're sort of half there. But uh, you have the pastoral role, but you do not have this magical role of becoming a magician and converting uh, the bread, literally, into the body and blood. Of Christ. Therefore, the Second Vatican Council speaks of defectus sacramenti ordinis. So they are defective in their ordination with regard to the sacrament. That's a nice way of saying uh, you're not up to scratch. And I'm surprised that Lutherans quite happily publish this and not a word of complaint. I mean, if I, if I were them, I would say, we protest as Protestants that we are defectus sacramenti ordinis. Uh, we think you are defecti sacramenti ordinis. I mean, that's just my nature. Why, that's probably why I'm not in these ecumenical councils. Article 192, for Catholics... The Roman pontiff has full, supreme, and universal power over the church. The College of Bishops also exercises supreme and full power over the universal church. Together with its head, the Roman pontiff is never without this head. 
Okay, together with the Roman pontiff. So, Rome doesn't make any bones about it. It's absolutely clear that it hasn't moved one micromillimeter from its position that it held at Trent. And if you're going to have communion with them and union, well then it means that uh, by silence you accept it. Article 194. In the course of history, the Lutheran ministerial office has been able to fulfill its task of keeping the church in the truth. Now, this is so fascinating to me. You see, in the past, Rome used to say that these churches that had separated from the mother church were lost, and that anybody in their ranks was lost and doomed to hell forever and ever. After Vatican II, they changed their stance and called them separated brethren. So, the Bible says she will not suffer loss of children. They will come, the children will return to her. So, here they have to deal with this issue now. Here they were, damned under the anathemas of the Pope, and now they have to be reincorporated. So, you have to sort of do it gingerly. And uh, so, the fact that they can come back into the church means there must be some element of church still in them. This is so condescending, it's unbelievable. Let's read it. In the course of history, the Lutheran ministerial office has been able to fulfill its task, keeping the church in the truth, so that nearly 500 years after the beginning of the Reformation, it was possible to declare a Catholic-Lutheran consensus on the basic truths of the doctrine of justification, which of course was not a consensus but a total distortion because it wasn't even justification they were talking about but a conglomerate that uh, is so cleverly, serpentinely worded that uh, it would confuse even the Einsteins of this world. If according to the judgment of the Second Vatican Council, the Holy Spirit uses ecclesial communities as means of salvation, it could seem that this work of the Spirit would have implications for some mutual recognition of ministry. That's nauseating. Thus the office of the ministry presents both considerable obstacles to common understanding and also hopeful perspectives for reproachment. How condescending. Very well put. Scripture and tradition. Now, scripture and tradition was another major issue at the Council of Trent. And it's fascinating that at the Council of Trent, the Protestants said, Sola Scriptura. We stand on the basis of the Bible and the Bible alone. And Rome said, no, on the basis of the Bible as interpreted by tradition. So tradition stands above the scriptures. And this argument continued. And there were many that were on the verge of being convinced and said, uh, well, isn't this true? Shouldn't the, the scriptures be the basics or the basis for morality? Why should tradition be the basis for morality? Until 
the Archbishop of Reggio walked into the council and said to the Protestants, you Protestants, you suppose that you are basing your beliefs on sola scriptura, but you're not. Because on the issue of the Sabbath, you show that you obey the command of the Roman Catholic Church, which is, which is based on tradition and not on the scripture. So the mere fact that you obey the Roman Catholic Church and keep the tradition rather than your guide, the scripture, shows that you are not really a Christian movement, a separate entity, but you are just in rebellion against the church. Otherwise you would reject everything that the church said. And thereby, tradition won because not even the Protestants were adhering to sola scriptura. So now let's see where we will go. But nevertheless, they separated with the idea that they were fully sola scriptura, the Protestants, and the others were tradition and scripture. Luther's understanding of scripture, its interpretation, and human tradition. The controversy that broke out in connection with the spread of Luther's 95 theses on indulgences very quickly raised the question of which authorities one can call upon at the time of struggle. The papal court theologian, Sylvester Prieras, argued in his first answer to Luther's thesis on indulgences, whoever does not hold to the teaching of the Roman Church and the Pope as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scripture also derives its power, and authority, he is a heretic. So that was the argument in the time of Luther by the papal theologians. And then they add another papal theologians with whom there was much conflict, namely John Eck. And John Eck replied to Luther, the scripture is not authentic without the authority of the church. The conflict very quickly went from being a controversy about doctrinal questions, the right understanding of indulgences, penance, absolution, to a question of authority in the church. In cases of conflict between different authorities, Luther could regard only scripture as the ultimate judge because it had shown itself to be an efficacious and powerful authority, while other authorities merely drew their power from it. Now, that part of their history is right. But the statement that they make over here, where they say that Scripture draws its authority from the church and not the other way round, is it negated in this document? Yes or no? No, it stands. Because otherwise they would say, this was our position 500 years ago, but we've changed. No, it stands. All right. When Vatican II speaks of the church having an ultimate judgment, it clearly eschews a monopolistic claim that the magisterium, which is the hierarchical structure of the church, is the sole organ of interpretation, which is confirmed both by the century-old official promotion of Catholic biblical studies and recognition. So they acknowledge scripture, but of course only in the context of their authority. Thus Lutherans and Catholics are able jointly to conclude. Now this is to me fascinating. Therefore regarding scripture and tradition, 
Lutherans and Catholics are in such extensive agreement that their different emphases do not of themselves require maintaining the present division of the churches. In this area there is unity in reconciled diversity. Good grief. So what have they actually done, the Lutherans, by agreeing to this? Because this is their joint document, isn't it? Haven't they now sacrificed the word for consensual unity? Yes. They haven't given up their position where they claim sola scriptura, according to this. And Rome hasn't given up its position one iota, but they decided to join anyway. What's that other than capitulation? Isn't it? It's capitulation. So they capitulated on the word of God. And once you start capitulating on the word of God, you're on a very slippery slope going down, down, down from a Jerusalem position to a Jericho position where you are lost. Article 214, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council in Lumen Gentium, papal encyclical, is essential to the Catholic understanding of the church. The council fathers explained the role of the church within salvation history in terms of sacramentality. Now, I'm not going to read this whole piece over here. I just want to highlight that one section. In other words, the role of the church is a sacramental role. That means altogether necessary for salvation. That's why they said in their Vatican II documents that the position of Rome regarding the church has not changed one iota. Rome, the Church of Rome, is still altogether necessary for salvation. And therefore all churches that are affiliated in the Ecumenical Council, although they call them themselves by whatever name they are, if they're not in this relationship, they're lost. Because sacramental means necessary for salvation. Hmm. Interesting. They are blatantly arrogant. So this makes the Roman church altogether necessary for salvation. No change. Now, towards consensus, I thought this one was important, so I gave it a nota bene, Article 216. In the Lutheran-Roman Catholic conversations, a clear consensus has emerged that the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of the church belong together. What have they just done? What have they done by agreeing to this? They have said that salvation is not in Christ and Christ alone. It's not a personal issue between you and God. You have to be affiliated with the system in order to be saved. So they have capitulated to the idea that salvation lies within the Roman Church and the Roman Church alone, because that is what they have said. So she will not suffer loss of children. She's got them back, right back where they should be, sitting on Mama's lap. 221. 
since Catholics and Lutherans are bound to one another in the body of Christ as members of it, then it is true of them what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if one member suffers, the other one suffers. If one is honored, well, you rejoice together. So what affects one member of the body also affects the other. For this reason, when Lutheran Christians remember the events that led to the particular formation of their churches, they do not wish to do so without their Catholic fellow Christians. So now we're heading towards this idea of 2017, where we are going to join in one celebration as one, which means you have to basically apologize for the Reformation. 222, because they believe that they belong to the one body of Christ, Lutherans emphasized that their church did not originate with the Reformation or come into existence 500 years ago. This is very clever, because when uh, Martin Luther started his process, protest, he had no intention of separating from the church. He wanted to reform the church. So here is a truth which is actually not a truth, because when they decided that the papacy was antichrist, based on their study of Daniel, and Martin Luther said that the, everybody should read the book of Daniel in order to understand the prophetic times we live in, then they did separate, and the separation was final. And they even had their political structures built in, which wasn't necessary in accordance with the Word of God, but they separated totally, even in terms of their political organizations. All right, so they says they didn't start the church then. The Reformers had no desire to found a new church, correct? And according to their own understanding, they did not do so. The early Reformers actually did not want to start a new church. They wanted to reform the church, and they managed to do so within the field, within their field of influence, albeit with errors and missteps. Can you believe that a Lutheran modern leadership would put out a document like this, where they capitulate to the point where they say, sorry we even exist? Excuse me, what are the issues? So I'm wondering, a Lutheran signed this? What is going on here? Now we are preparing for the commemoration, which comes in 2017. As members of one body, Catholics and Lutherans remember together the events of the Reformation, etc., etc. Uh, it is an impossible possibility and a source of great pain that they were separated. Because they belong to one body, Catholics and Lutherans struggle in the face of their division towards full Catholicity of the Church. This struggle has two sides, the recognition of what is common and joins them together and the recognition of what divides. The first is a reason for gratitude and joy and the second a reason for pain and lament. In 2017, when Lutheran Christians celebrate the anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, they are not thereby celebrating the division of the Western Church. We're not going to celebrate the division. We're actually going to lament the division and then we're going to walk together. No one who is theologically responsible can celebrate the division of Christians from one another. New emphasis. 
totally new emphasis. For this reason, they invite all Christians to celebrate with them. Hmm. This takes up an impulse that the Vatican, Second Vatican Council expressed, Catholics must gladly acknowledge and esteem the truly Christian endowment from our common heritage, which are to be found amongst our separate brethren. When you speak about the common heritage, they came out of which religion? Catholicism. So it's Catholicism going back to Catholicism on every single level. It's brilliantly worded here and there. Reasons to regret and lament. Now, I was stunned when I read this. To think that this is a document that the Lutheran Federation gave out. On this occasion, in 2017, Lutherans will also remember the vicious and degrading statements that Martin Luther made against the Jews. They are ashamed of them and deeply deplore them. Lutherans have come to recognize with a deep sense of regret the persecution of the Anabaptists by Lutheran authorities and the fact that Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon theologically supported this persecution. They deplore Luther's violent attacks against the peasants during the peasant war. Whew. Interesting. So who gets whipped with a lash here? for mistakes that happened. And in any case, Martin Luther was the one who tried to stop the peasant war. And if you look at the, the, the history of Luther, you'll see that this is a complete distortion. Now the Anabaptists, yes, they had truth, and they even referred to the Sabbath and the issues involved. But it was associated with what they called in those days fanaticism. People rolling and hooping and, and the devil is very clever. When truth arises, he will pervert it through extremism. And so what they, what they addressed was the extremism and they prevented this, this light, as it were, from entering into the churches. And yes, there was turmoil. And if you read what Martin Luther writes about the Jews, he surely lambastes them for what they did to Jesus Christ. But if you read in his table talk, he also wants them all to be saved. Now, I can understand where this goes to, because when I just in Germany mentioned in a lecture the theological issue that if you be in Christ, you be Abraham's seed, and when I mentioned in that lecture that genetically even the modern Jews are not necessarily uh, of the same stock as the stock of the literal Abraham, in other words, the, uh, the Semitic races, I was lambasted too. And I was put in the worst possible light. But when the Spiegel came out with an article saying exactly the same, Nobody lambasted the Spiegel, which is very interesting. So, all right, so let's bring out the whip and let's whip the Lutherans. I would like to hear where is the statement about the torture chambers of the Roman Catholic Church, the setting and light of live people, the burning, the torturing, the waterboarding, you name it, the worst instruments of torture that were ever invented by 
humanity. Uh, I see none of it here. The, when, the awareness of the dark sides of Luther and the Reformation has prompted a critical and self-critical attitude of Lutheran theologians towards Luther and the Wittenberg Reformation. Even though they agree in part with Luther's criticism of the papacy, you see, it's always in part. Nevertheless, Lutherans today reject Luther's identification of the Pope with the Antichrist. Another capitulation. There we go. Total capitulation. I know that they previously at their synod already decided that the Pope should not be called Antichrist, but that doesn't make him any less the Antichrist than what he is. They can call him what he likes. The Bible calls him Antichrist, and the doctrines which he teaches confirm that he is Antichrist. And you cannot wrest the scriptures from their foundations. I thought this was a brilliant move on the part of Pope Francis. Pope Francis asks Valdensian Christians to forgive the church. That's a brilliant strategy. Absolutely brilliant. Pope Francis has asked Valdensian Christians to forgive the Catholic Church for historic persecution earlier today. Francis became the first pontiff in history to visit the Valdensian Evangelical Church when he attended the Valdensian Temple in Turin. The Pope is currently taking part on a two-day visit. And uh, he said, on the part of the Catholic Church, I ask your forgiveness. I ask it for non-Christians and even inhuman attitudes and behavior that we have showed to you, said the Pope. He added, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us. Brilliant. Brilliant. I see nothing regarding the Lutherans on this issue so far in this document. Because the Valdensians are fully part of the ecumenical movement. So, so are, the, are the others. But the Valdensians are no longer standing for the truth they once stood for. They were Sabbath keepers. And they were persecuted because of their Sabbath keeping. And if you read the documents that surround this, they will tell you that they were a heretical sect. Why? Because they kept the Sabbath. So if you keep the Sabbath, you're an, a heretical text, uh, sect. But of course, they capitulated. They're not keeping Sabbath anymore. They're keeping Sunday. I would like to remind my Valdensian brothers and sisters, remember where you came from? That you stood by the word of God and by the word of God alone and that you kept the commandments of God and not the commandments of a Pope? And I would like you to come back to that position because this is capitulation and all the blood that filled those rivers in the Piedmont Valley surely wasn't spilt in vain. 230, because Jesus Christ, before his death, prayed to the Father that they may be one. It is clear that the division of the body of Christ is opposed to the will of the Lord. Yes. Now I have a point. Of course it's not in God's will that God's people should be separated. But you have to be united on the basis of truth. You cannot be united on the basis of error. So God's people, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, they have no light in them. And uh, Paul constantly admonishes Timothy to stand on doctrinal issues and not to capitulate when it comes to this. 
16th century divisions were rooted in different understandings of the truth of Christian faith and were particularly contentious. So they were particularly contentious in the past. How theologians presented their the theological convictions in the battle for public opinion is quite another matter. In the 16th century, they frequently not only misunderstood but exaggerated the issues. I've never read that in my life. I've never read anyone more clear and direct and concise than Martin Luther or Melanchthon or any of those theologians. And I've never thought that John Knox exaggerated the position on this issue. If I read those writings, it is clear, it's concise, it's Bible-based. This is sweeping it under the rug of history, and let's start again. Prejudices and misunderstandings played a great role in the characterization of the other side. Both Lutherans and Catholics bear guilt that needs to be openly confessed in the remembrance of the events of 500 years ago. So there's going to be a confession of guilt. Interesting. So now we've seen that the, the Lutherans are, well, evil in terms of their conduct in the past towards the Anabaptists and, and this and that and the other. And now let's read about his confession, the Pope's confession. Catholic confession of sins against unity. Already in his message to the Imperial Diet in Nuremberg on 25 November 1522, Pope Hadrian complained of abuses and trespasses, sins and errors, insofar as the church authorities had committed them. Insofar as the church authorities had committed them. He asked pardon from God and the divided brethren of the East. That's the Orthodox. He didn't ask pardon of those in the West. Pope John Paul II similarly acknowledged guilt and offered prayers for forgiveness as part of the observance of the 2000 Holy Year. Vague terminology. In so far as the church authorities had committed them. That's like me going to my wife after a mega argument and saying to her, in so far as I was responsible in this argument, forgive me. I don't think it'll go down very well. Do you think so? No, that's not, that's not a public confession. A public confession is, forgive me, I was a dog. I was mean and vindictive, and I'm sorry, and I'll do my best never to be like that again. That's, that's a pardon. Not this dribble. He also related the request of forgiveness to the office of the Bishop of Rome. How nice of him. So insofar as the Bishop of Rome was responsible, well, this is not a confession at all. This is playing around with words. At its fifth assembly in Evian in 1970, the Lutheran world Federation declared in response to a deeply moving presentation by young Cardinal Villebrandt's. Can you see how the Catholic side is always elevated to be so moving and so eloquent and so this and so that? They said, we as Lutheran Christians and congregations are prepared to acknowledge 
that the judgment of the reformers upon the Roman Catholic Church and its theology was not entirely free of polemic distortions. Excuse me. What don't the reformers today understand about Catholic doctrine? It's as plain as daylight. Nothing has changed, which in part have been perpetuated to the present day. We are truly sorry for the offense and misunderstanding which these polemic elements have caused our Roman Catholic brethren. We remember with gratitude the statement of Pope Paul VI to the Vatican Council, where he says, forgiveness for any offenses caused by the Roman Catholic Church. A plea for forgiveness for any offenses. It's so vague. In as far as... So, this is a public apology for the Reformation. When the Lutherans say, we acknowledge that we were wrong, sorry, that's a public acknowledgement that the Reformation was wrong. Lutherans also confessed their wrongdoings with respect to other Christian traditions. I have never seen such a biased document in my entire life. The blood of millions of saints ignored that was spared spent on behalf of their campaign against Protestantism. And one point after the other, lambasting the Lutherans as the rebels of this cause who have to come back with just a light beating rap over the knuckles. We've killed a few million of you before, but let's just give you a little rap and then come back to mommy. Their wrongdoings towards other Christian tradition. At the 11th Assembly in Stuttgart, 2010, Lutheran World Federation declared that Lutherans are filled with deep sense of regret and pain over the persecution of the Anabaptists, etc. So again, they rub it in. So my contention is, it seems like the sins of the Lutherans are spelled out and the sins of the Catholics are only addressed in insofar as we were responsible. If you had the book, Table Talk, you were sentenced to death for having a book. Death penalty. Dragged out into the streets. Burnt at the stake. Good grief. The awareness is dawning on Lutherans and Catholics that the struggle of the 16th century is over. The reason for mutually condemning each other's faith have fallen by the wayside. I hope that I have demonstrated to my Lutheran brethren and all those associated with Protestantism, whether they be Methodists, whether they be Baptists, whether they be in Evangelicals, it doesn't matter, that none of the issues have been resolved. Not one single one. There has not been one iota of movement on the part of the Roman Catholic system. So my question is, is it over? The Reformation? Really? Is it over? Or is it now only beginning? I think we are in the throes of the final confrontation. Then they have a couple of imperatives. We don't have to go into the details. Well, there are a couple of issues when we grapple with the matter of authority. Who is the boss? But they've already spelled out who the boss is. I'm not going to read all of these. Second imperative, Lutherans must uh, and Catholics must let themselves be 
continuously transformed by the encounter with each other. No, no, no. There's no transformation on the part of Catholics. This means, Lutherans, you better be transformed. They should again commit themselves to seek visible unity, and their challenge is to prevent this re-reading of tradition from falling back into old confessional oppositions. We're friends now. Let's not argue anymore. Lutherans and Catholics should jointly rediscover the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for our time. I thought the gospel was the same in every single age. Is there a different gospel for our time? Or was salvation always by the blood of the Lamb? There's no other name under heaven and earth whereby you can be saved except the name Christ Jesus. As far as I'm concerned, that's the gospel. But no, they have a social agenda. So they're going to transform it into a a social gospel. Why? Because they cannot possibly have a doctrinal gospel. And the fifth imperative, Catholics and Lutherans should witness together to the mercy of God, proclaim it to the world. Where do we stand now? We as a people, this is my question, on these points in the light of the great controversy. So let me read from this great Protestant writer and let people consider whether this is truth or whether this is not. Ten manuscripts released, 315. We are to give the message, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Come out of her, my people, that you are not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. This message is to come to the churches. We are consider, to consider the best plans for accomplishing this. The message must be so presented as to command the attention of reasoning minds. All right. The message must go out. Babylon is fallen. She has become the house of demons, of every unclean and detestable bird. Then we must have a clear definition of who Babylon is. You can't just go out there and say, hello, Babylon, you're fallen. People must know what we're talking about. Our warfare is aggressive. Tremendous issues are before us, yea, and right upon us. Let our prayers ascend to God that the four angels may still hold the four winds, that they might not blow to injure or destroy until the last warning has been given to the world. Then let us work in harmony with our prayers. Let nothing lessen the force of the truth for this time. The present truth is to be our burden. The third angel's message must do its work in separating from the churches a people who will take their stand on the platform of eternal truth. This is the message, this is the mission of this final movement. Those involved in this movement, which now numbers in the millions across the world, are not better than others. They have just responded to this plea based on the evidence that we have discussed. Let us find out this issue of Babylon. Let's discuss it and study it a little further. There are two calls out of Babylon in the Bible. You find the one in Revelation chapter 14. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And you find another one in Revelation chapter 18. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. She has become a house of demons and every unclean and detestable bird. Come out of her, my people. 
There are two calls to Abraham. The first call out of Ur was just a partial coming out because he got stuck in Haran, where his father still worshipped foreign gods. So, the first call is just a partial coming out. And the second one will be the final coming out. When that generation died, the second call out of Haran resulted in a complete separation from idolatry. In the same way, there will come a loud cry of the third angel's message, which will support the second angel and say, Come out! Now come out! Separate yourselves! So the second call out of Babylon will result in total separation from idolatry. This is how I see it. These are my words. Now according to Asher, the first call to Abraham was in 922, and the second call out of Haran came in 921. There's also the start of the 430 years for the Jewish people. So that's history. So there were two calls, and at the end of time there are two calls. There were two temple cleansings in the time of Jesus. There will be two temple cleansings at the end. Now the midnight cry, what was that? The midnight cry took place in 1844. The midnight cry empowered the second angel's message. I saw a great light from heaven shining upon the people of God. The rays of this light seemed bright as the sun. And I heard the voice of the angel crying, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. This was the midnight cry, which was to give power to the second angel's message. In other words, when the people realized that the commandments had been rediscovered, and that uh, there were certain biblical issues that the churches were being involved in and preaching which were not biblical, for example, the state of the dead, doctrines on hell, and issues relating around the sanctuary and the plan of salvation, and the commandments, the Sabbath versus the Sunday, and obedience to all of God's commandments, then some people came out, pastors, Lay people came out of the churches and joined this movement to preach the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's, this gave power to the second angel's message. So people started to realize that there was a problem in the churches up there. So the loud cry at the end also empowers the second angel. Because it says Babylon is fallen, it's fallen. That's second angel, not third angel's message. Of Babylon, this is the great controversy, of Babylon at the time brought to view in this prophecy, it is declared, her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Revelation 18.5 She has filled up the measure of her guilt, and destruction is about to fall upon her. We must read very carefully. But God still has a people in Babylon. The people that belong to God are sitting in the churches that are aligning themselves with the Babylonian confusion of Rome. Remember that Rome speaks with the mouth of the lion, and that's the symbol of Babylon. 
Okay, she has filled up the measure of her guilt and destruction is about to fall upon her. But God still has a people in Babylon and before the visitation of his judgment, these faithful ones must be called out that they partake not of her sins and receive not of her plagues. This is what the Bible teaches. Hence the movement symbolized by the angel coming down from heaven, lightening the earth with his glory and crying mightily with a strong voice, announcing the sins of Babylon. Did we just spend a whole lecture going through the doctrinal positions which Protestantism in their latest document have given up, yes or no? In connection with, these mes- with this mes- his message, the call is heard, come out of her, my people. These announcements, united with the third angel's message, constitute the final warning to be given to the inhabitants of the earth. I have no doubt that this is the final warning to the inhabited world. It might be embellished with more facts as we go along, but this is the heart and the core of the final message. And it's the third angel's message, do not accept the mark of the beast, do not accept earthly laws in the place of God's law. But it also asks the question, if your church, your institution, refuses to accept the truth and goes along with the lie, you have no choice but to separate yourself. Then I saw another mighty angel commissioned to descend to the earth to unite his voice with the third angel and give power and force to the message. Great power and glory were imparted to the angel, and as he descended, the earth was lightened with his glory. The light which attended this angel penetrated everywhere, and he cried mightily, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, is become a habitation of devils and a hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. This message of the fall of Babylon, as given by the second angel, is repeated. So there was a second angel, and now it is the loud cry of Revelation 18. With the additional mention of the corruptions which have been entering the churches since 1844. So all of the issues that have corrupted the churches, as they gave up their Protestant doctrines, one of the first being to accept dispensationalism, so the danger was no longer there in Rome, but the danger was some airy-fairy future Antichrist who doesn't even exist yet, who will come and uh, live in a temple that doesn't exist yet. Such ridiculousness when the Bible is so absolutely clear in its historic continuous interpretation of the Bible. And when they gave that up, well then any wind of doctrine could come in so that Lutherans can say, let's venerate a host and let's uh, be priests and forgive sins. I mean, that's how ridiculous you can become eventually. I heard those clothed with the armor speak forth the truth with great power. It had effect. Many had been bound, some wives by their husbands, some children by their parents. The honest who had been prevented from hearing the truth now eagerly laid hold upon it. All fears of their relatives were gone and the truth alone was exalted to them. They had been hungering and thirsting for truth. It was dearer and more precious than life. I asked what had made the change and The answer was, it is the latter rain. It is the loud cry of the third angel. So this is the message that has to go to the world. And if we're not bringing that message, then we are failing in our duty. 
The straight testimony will produce the shaking. I asked the meaning of the shaking. I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear it. They will rise up against it and it will cause a shaking. There are those amongst us who will make confessions as did Achan, too late to save themselves. They are not in harmony with right. They despise the straight testimony that reaches the heart and would rejoice to see everyone silenced who gives reproof. The Lord calls for a renewal of the straight testimony. So we cannot mince words at this stage. I am of the opinion that history is going to be repeated. There were two calls to Abraham. There were two temple cleansings. There were two calls out of Babylon. Surely this is not the first call but the second call. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 7 verse 24. I'm going to take you back to the history of the Jews. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. So here was the state saying, I'm not going to be the one who is going to ask this. Who's clamoring for this? It was the Jews, the Jewish nation. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. What a terrible curse to call upon yourself. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, for no cause whatsoever, other than to appease them, of course, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his hand. And they bowed down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Do you realize what they did? This was the earthly coronation of the King of Kings. He was, though mockingly, acknowledged as the King. He received a crown. He received a scepter. He was inaugurated as the King of Kings right here, without them knowing what they were doing. But Pilate answered them, saying, Mark 15, verse 9, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And I was the king. For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy, but the chief priest moved the people. Typology, at the end of time, the chief priests will move the people. Well, they're all priests now again, haven't they acknowledged this? There's no such thing as a priest post uh, the crucifixion, but anyway. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And that's what the Jesuit said. He said, we cannot have a government for righteous people. We need one for sinners because these righteous people are a pain in the neck. Let's get rid of them. Who can live with them? 
And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him, whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said unto them, But what evil has he done? They cried out even the more exceedingly, Crucify him! And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabata. And it was the preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, Behold your king! Do you see the emphasis on the king? But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said unto him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Fascinating. So they rejected the king of kings and accepted the authority of Caesar. Now we have to go to a little bit of history and study this issue because this is a fascinating history. History is more fascinating than any soap opera that the world can possibly invent. Let's go to the history. Caesar. As the power of Rome expanded into many parts of Greece, Attalus, the last king of Pergamos, died in 133 BC and left in his will all the dominions of Pergamos to the Roman people. Now the Bible talks about Pergamos, and the Bible says Pergamos where Satan has his seat. So what happened? The Babylonian priesthood that ruled over Babylon was in absolute control and had all power. When the Medo-Persians took over, they did not want to be subject to the Medo-Persians, and so the priesthood left Babylon, and they established themselves at Pergamos with the full rights and powers of the Babylonian priest-kings. And so this king was known as Pontifex Maximus. Thus the kingdom of Pergamos was merged into the dominions of Rome. However, for some years there was no one who could openly lay claim to all the dignity and power inherent in the title of the king of Pergamos, namely that of sovereign pontiff. This is history, I'm quoting history. The powers of the Roman pontiff were therefore somewhat restricted. But this situation changed dramatically with the arrival of Julius Caesar. So, 133 BC, the king of Pergamos bequeathed his title, his power, his vestments to Rome. But there was a condition. And the condition was the following. 
as the king of Pergamos was not a mere mortal, but as it were God on earth, the condition was, if you want to take this title upon yourself in its fullness, then the king has to be declared God, to be God, and he must be worshipped. And the Roman emperors didn't do that until you get to Julius Caesar. Now, gets interesting. It was from Julius Caesar's name that the Roman emperors took their title Caesar. What did the Jews say? We have no king except Caesar. Caesar's also held the position of Pontifex Maximus. So they were God kings. I have a question. Who has that title today? The Pope. So Pope Francis is Pontifex Maximus, which means he has the full title and power that was granted by Attalus to the Romans, which was first appropriated by Julius Caesar. From thence onwards, all the Roman emperors were called Caesar, taking it from his name. And they were gods. They had to be worshipped as gods. And temples were constructed where the people had to worship their god, who was Caesar. That's history. It's stranger than fiction. Julius Caesar was elected to the position of Pontifex Maximus in the year 63 BC. So for almost 70 years, this title had been lying there, and it wasn't appropriated, but he took it. He subsequently assumed the position of supreme ruler of the Roman state. Thus he had vested in him all the powers and functions of the Babylonian pontiff, and he was the true legitimate successor to Belsasa. So he was the king of Babylon. Not satisfied with this, he was declared to be Jupiter's incarnation on the 25th of December, 48 BC. So now he became God. In the temple of Jupiter in Alexandria, the Encyclopedia Britannica says about Julius Caesar the following. There are signs that in the last six months of his life he aspired not only to a monarchy in name as well as in fact, but also to a divinity which Romans should acknowledge as well as Greeks, Orientals, and Barbarians. So who must acknowledge it? Everyone, the whole world. Julius Caesar, by laying claim to be divine, followed the pattern of the kings of Pergamos. The Roman emperor that followed Julius Caesar were commonly regarded as gods. So if you take that title, you are saying you are God. If you say you are the heir of Julius Caesar's empire, you are God. The beast. Pope Francis leads the celebration of the Vespers of the solemnity of the conversion of St. Paul, January 25th, 2014, concluding the week of prayer for Christian unity at the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls. And here this pontiff enthrones himself on a great white throne between 
the cherubim. Now, excuse me, what is he saying? And I saw a great white throne, and he that was seated upon it at the end of time. And the prophets all claimed that he was seated between the cherubim. Isn't that correct? And the seraphim. So here is a man who, by this blatant uh, act, is saying that he is God. He sitteth in the temple of God, claiming that he is God. Now it's interesting that Malachi Martin, in his books, and he was a Jesuit, claims that in this very cathedral of St. Paul's, Lucifer was being worshipped directly. Not me saying so, Malachi Martin saying so. And here you have the Pope sitting on his great white throne between the cherubim, claiming that he is God. So if the Lutherans or any Protestant group says, we have no other leader than Caesar, what are they doing? Aren't they doing exactly the same that the Jews did in the time of Jesus? They gave up their Messiah and they chose the earthly Caesar. And in their document, they've done exactly the same thing. They've given up their king and have accepted the authority again of Caesar. They have said, in effect, and when they publicly apologize in 2017, they will say, we have no king other than Caesar. Question, did probation close for the Jews when they said that? It's a trick question. The answer is no. We have a very long-suffering God. And we'll follow the typology further as we go along and see when probation closed for the Jews. According to the prophecy that you find in Daniel, at the 70-week prophecy, at the end of the 70 weeks, then the time of the Jews is fulfilled. And that didn't end with the crucifixion of Jesus, but it ended with the stoning of Stephen, as we saw. Now, there's a beast in Revelation chapter 13. And all the reformers, all the reformers, identified the first beast of Revelation chapter 13 as the papacy. That's history. But there's a second beast in Revelation that does all the bidding of the first beast on his behalf. And we have interpreted that as Protestant America, because it makes its appearance as a beast, which is a political entity, according to the scripture. The beast thou sawest are kingdoms, nations, etc. It's a kingdom. And the second beast makes its appearance when the first one receives a mortal wound, 1798. And that is when the United States is recognized as this new emerging world power. And this power will do all the bidding of the first beast on his behalf and will force everyone 
to enforce the mark of the beast. So now let's go to the second beast. This is fascinating. Because here, in this picture, you have King Obama because he has a crown on his lap. There's a crown on his lap. And he's sitting on a great iron throne consisting apparently of a thousand swords of those nations that have capitulated to the power. On the desk in front is the bow and over here you have the pine cones which are of course one of the great symbols of the Roman power you'll find them in the Vatican court because it is the symbol of the seed that will pollinate the entire world with their doctrine and the bow is always a symbol of Christ or Antichrist now why is he sitting on an iron throne iron is the metal for which kingdom? Rome. The symbolism is brilliant. Of course, the White House laughed it off and said they were just making a joke. Critics slam White House for tweeting picture of Obama as king. Republican Michelle Bachman, for example, noted that Obama may think he's a king, but he's not. Well, I've got news for him. He is a king. Because every single president of the United States since its inception has come from one royal family. He's a king. Whether they like it or not, this is the new world order. So maybe they think it's a joke, but it's not. It's a message, a clear message. Sent out a message blasting the president as a lying socialist dictator. And so there was much anger with regard to this picture. So it was a signal picture. So you have the beast, the king, the god king sitting on a great white throne enthroned between the cherubim, and you have his lackey, the army of Rome, sitting on an iron throne with all the swords indicating the capitulation of the nations to this structure. This is the final event that history will deliver because the Bible says the whole world wandered after the beast. Now just to make sure that we're not somewhere speculating too wildly. Revelation 13 verse 4 says people worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked who is like the beast who can wage war against him. You see the swords have been handed over. They've capitulated. The swords are all facing down. In other words, they have capitulated. The sword is not up in a military fashion. And the Bible clearly says that the system that capitulates and accepts the authority of the first beast, which is Rome, the Roman pontiff, who sits on the throne pretending to be God, is worshipping the devil. That's what it says. They worship the dragon. So they're worshipping the devil. 
And of course he's got the title of the King of Pergamos. So it's no coincidence that when Obama accepted his first presidential candidacy for the Democratic Party, that he accepted it on the backdrop of the Temple of Pergamos. So Obama's stage at the 2008 Democratic Convention was designed in the style of the Pergamon altar, a Greek temple which is mentioned in the book of Revelation as the seat of Satan or the throne of Satan, depending on the translation. So here we have a system brewing. U.S. globalist strategy is to dominate the world, so says Press TV. I don't have to read the entire thing because basically that's enough. And exactly, of course that is true. Of course they will dominate the world because the Bible says they will. Doesn't the Bible say they will force everyone, rich, poor, slave, free, to accept the mark of the beast? Yes. So we are at that point in history. Papst Franziskus wird als erster Papst vor dem US-Kongress sprechen. The Pope will speak for, before the Congress. Now, everybody is speculating as to what he will say. It doesn't really matter what he will say. He could sing a lullaby in, in the Congress. It wouldn't make any difference. The fact that he is appearing in the Congress sends a message. Now, if I take a parallel... Recently, before he retired, Pope Benedict was the first Pope to speak before the German Parliament. And there was some hoo-ha about him speaking in the German Parliament. And when he appeared in the German Parliament, he had basically the following to say. I'm paraphrasing him. He said, the fact that you are permitting me to speak in front of this Parliament is an acknowledgement of my moral authority. And if you acknowledge my moral authority, then you as the legislature of the nation have the duty to see to it that the necessary laws regarding that issue are implemented. Basically, that's what he said. So by just stepping into this Capitol building, which, by the way, has Persiformis, or the goddess, Mary in her modern form, on top, facing Rome. And there he will step in. It's his turf. His Jesuit founder-generals, White and General Ricky set up the stage for him back then. It has been run behind the scenes by the Jesuits and now as Jesuit he walks in and he claims it. This is the final event that tells the world I am the God King. Bow down before me acknowledge my moral authority. Now there's much hype about this visit. Pope to address Congress during blood moon, tetrad and day of atonement, plus talk of asteroid the same week. What does all this mean? And all these people are going berserk. You know what? Who cares? 
blood moon, no blood moon, pink moon, red moon, yellow moon, green moon, I don't care. Day of Atonement, day before, day after, if they want to have their Kabbalistic funny little games, let them play them. We're not interested. As Protestants, we're interested in what the Bible has to say. And the Bible says they will give their power unto the beast. This is a demonstration of the fact that they acknowledge his moral authority. Or, and it doesn't matter whether the moon is pink or blue or green or yellow, or whether it was pink or blue or green once or twice or three times or four times, it's irrelevant. So we mustn't jump onto these bandwagons. We have a more sure word of prophecy. NBC, Washington. Vatican releases Pope Francis' U.S. itinerary. The Pope will arrive at Joint Base Andrews on September 22. The next day, he will meet with President Barack Obama at the White House and celebrate Mass outside the Basilica whatever, of the Immaculate Conception, of course, that's where it would be. Because Mary becomes an acronym for Lucifer. The Mass outside the Basilica will be in Spanish and will be a ticketed event. 24th, he meets with the both Houses of Congress, and on the 25th, he addresses the United Nations. So he goes from the most powerful nations in the world where they acknowledge his moral authority just by allowing his foot into that place, irrespective of what he has to say, and then he goes to the United Nations. So symbolically he's saying, world, bow down to me. By the way, Yom Kippur 2015 is on September 22nd, and uh, you can get excited about that if you want to be a Kabbalist. I'm not interested in what they have to do. What I am interested in is that Obama calls for world leaders to heed Pope Francis's message. So he preempts it, and he says, we accept your authority. The President of the United States has said he wants fellow world leaders to reflect on Pope Francis's encyclical, published yesterday, called for humanity to change its approach to the environment and the way it judged progress. I welcome His Holiness Pope Francis' encyclical and deeply admire the Pope's decision to make the case clearly, powerfully, and with full moral authority of his position. Can you see where we're going? When you acknowledge the Pope's moral authority, you choose another king other than Jesus Christ. Because the only moral authority that Protestants can accept and acknowledge is Jesus Christ and the scriptures where that moral authority is declared. As we prepare for global climate negotiations, etc., well, I'm not really interested in any of the rest. What I'm interested in is that core statement. We acknowledge your moral authority. That's the core statement. And here is the encyclical. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. Anybody can get it off the web and read it for themselves. Again, the issue, he links the Eucharist to the environment. I mean, they're as far removed from each other as the East is from the West. <laughs> I don't know how he manages to, to link those two, but he does. In other words, if you acknowledge the Eucharist, you are acknowledging the continuing sacrifice. You are trampling Christ afresh 
every single day into the dust. So it's in the Eucharist that the fullness is already achieved. Nonsense! Because even when it is celebrated on the humble altar of the country church, the Eucharist is always in some way celebrated on the altar of the world. If you celebrate the Eucharist, you celebrate the victory of Satan over Jesus at the cross. That's what you do. This is a celebration of satanic victory over Christianity. Nothing other than that. This is what it is. And then he pushes his Sunday agenda. On Sunday, our participation in the Eucharist has special importance. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationships with God. It is a spurious Sabbath. It is the child of the papacy. It is not a command of God. And he is placing it in juxtaposition to the commandment of God and the choice that people have. Whose authority do I accept? Now it's not a question of a day. It's a question of authority. If I acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ as my only saviour and my source of moral authority, I will keep his moral law, which includes the fact that I will keep the Sabbath. And if I acknowledge the Caesar of this world, I have no other king but Caesar, I will acknowledge his law, but then I'm celebrating a satanic victory over Jesus Christ. And it's a serious issue. So those are the issues, the final issues. We are called to include in our work a dimension of receptivity and gratuity, and he couples this to Sunday. He's calling for Sunday legislation. That's what he's doing. Pope Francis calls for a new ecological economic order. He wraps up the first leg of his three-nation South American pilgrimage Wednesday after issuing an passionate call for a new economic and ecological world order where the goods of the earth are shared by everyone, not just exploited by the rich. In other words, let's alleviate the burden of riches from the Protestant nations and distribute it to our Vatican coffers. That's what he's saying. The goods of this men world are meant for everyone. Then why don't they sell the riches in the Vatican and give it to everyone? Now this is fascinating. Revelation 13.3 And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. He wasn't really wounded to death as we saw. It seemed to be wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wandered with an O after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with them. Now if you go back into history, here is the Sumerian god known as Ninurta. And he's a prototype of the god Marduk. And he slays one of the heads of the dragon. Can you see that? The devil is one of the greatest copycats. Well, he is the greatest copycat that ever existed. He wants to be like the Most High, and he appropriates everything that's in the Scripture to himself as though he did it. And uh, so this, this picture of the heads and the one that seems to be slain 
is something that comes already from the Assyrian kingdom and the Babylonians. And it is the counterfeit. So here it is the god Marduk that's, that uh, is the one who does it. Now, we had a, a lecture on this before where we spoke about the Herodian mind. Marduk and the sign of Anu, the sword and the trident, where you have a cross within a cross which you have as the, the symbol on the Vatican court. So here is the one who says, I have the moral authority. Matthew 24 verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So the ruin of Jerusalem was a symbol of the final ruin that will take place at the end of time. So it will overwhelm the world. The prophecies that received the partial fulfillment in the overthrow of Jerusalem have a more direct application to the last days. We are now standing on the threshold of a great and solemn event. The crisis is before us, such as the world has never witnessed. And sweetly to us, as to the first disciples, comes the assurance that God's kingdom ruleth over all. The program of coming events is in the hands of our Maker. The majesty of heaven has the destiny of nations as well as the concerns of his church in his own charge. The divine instructor is saying to every agent in the accomplishment of his plans, as he said to Cyrus, I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Now, this typology is being fulfilled to the very letter. In 2017, according to the document that we have studied, the Protestant world, under the leadership of those who started the Reformation, the Lutherans, will say, we have no king but Caesar. When you apologize for the Reformation, that is what you are saying. They are the antitype of what the Jews were in the time of Jesus. Probation didn't close. Remember it closed with the stoning of Stephen. So with the stoning of Stephen, probation closed for the Jews as a nation. So what will be the trigger for the close of probation? when they start stoning the antitypical Stephen, then they will have filled up their measure. In other words, when they start persecuting those that cling to the authority of Jesus Christ and his moral authority, which is his law, when they start persecuting them, probation will close. Now, in the past, there was a time frame attached to that. It was three and a half years. Now, there's time no more. So, we don't have to duplicate that because we're in the antitype. So, when they start persecuting those who warn them against this issue, they will have filled up their measure. It can be days. It can be months. It can be whatever. But... How close are we?
to the antitypical destruction of Jerusalem. We are on the very edge. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was. And it's then that the decision will be made. Who is saved and who is lost? We are on the borders of Canaan. This is the final, final event on this planet. Who would have ever thought in my lifetime that the Protestant world would come to a point where they capitulate on every single doctrine, apologize for the Reformation, and say we have no king but Caesar? Who would have ever thought that? We're at the end of time. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Where do we stand? Do we esteem the treasures of this world? Or will we stand with the reproach of Christ and esteem it as a greater riches than anything else. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for endured as seeing him who is invisible. We can't see our king, but he's enthroned between the real cherubim, not two fake little statues. We serve a living king, not a false king. And are we going to fear his wrath? Or are we going to be subject to the king of kings? Hebrews 10 verse 37. For in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. This is now no time to shrink back. We have come thus far. We have been in this message for years now. And are we going to shrink back now? When we are on the very borders of Canaan, are we going to drop our sword and say, I capitulate? No. We're not going to add our sword to that throne of King Obama. I want to lift my sword. And my sword is not a physical sword. I hope yours is neither. Like Martin Luther said, let the minds clash, but the fist holds still. This sword is the sword of the word of God. Let the word of God do its cutting and let it separate a people out of Babylon to come into the kingdom of God. And but my righteous man will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. My fellow brothers and sisters, my fellow Protestants out there in the world, and all those who have been crushed over the years by the iron foot of Rome, which includes the Jews, which includes the Muslims, make a choice. Make a choice. Stand with the King of Kings or stand with the King on this earth. That is the choice we have to make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we are standing on the threshold of the final events of this earth's history. As your people throughout the ages capitulate to the point where they surrender the king of kings for potash, let not all your people follow along this path to a precipice, but let them come out and take their stand under the bloodstained banner of Prince Emmanuel. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, they have no light in them. Let us keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments. Help us, Lord, to stand in the face of great opposition, which will shortly increase, and then a time of trouble such as the world has never seen. But with you by our side, 10,000 may fall by our side, and nothing, no weapon forged against your people will stand. Help us to be faithful and by faith grab hold of eternal strength. In Jesus' name, Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.